0: Hi everyone. Welcome back to our Women in Cancer podcast. I'm your host, Maddie. And today I'm here with Dr. Maxine Billick and Dr. Shifra Ginsberg, who recently published a paper in academic medicine in March, 2022, titled Dressing to Part, Gender Differences in Residents' Experience of Feedback in Internal Medicine. So we're very excited to have our Hosts. Um, I'll briefly introduce and start uh, by introducing Dr. Shifra Ginsberg, who completed her medical school at McGill University, followed by postgraduate training in internal medicine and respirology, and a master's of education at the University of Toronto. And she also completed a PhD in health professions education. And currently, Dr. Ginsberg is a professor in the Department of Medicine and a scientist at the Wilson Center at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Ginsburg. And we also have Dr. Maxine Billick, who completed her medical school at McGill University Faculty of Medicine and completed her internal medicine postgraduate training at the University of Toronto and is currently the chief resident of internal medicine at University of Toronto and the first author of this paper. So thank you for joining us, Maxine. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So the theme of your paper was um, surrounding women trainees who are systematically disadvantaged and underrated in the workplace, and the idea behind how women and men receive different feedback. And maybe for women, the feedback might be more negative. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you
1: to lead this study? Of course. Um So it had initially stemmed actually from thinking about entrustable professional activities or EPAs, which Uh, was a concept introduced to the residency program and the assessment of residents, which sort of look at um, discrete or distinct activities and uh, requires residents to have um, assessments by faculty or by more senior trainees um, to give them feedback based on these. So I have a a personal background or interest in gender studies. Um, I was a gender and women's studies major in undergrad. And so uh, Shifra and I had sort of wondered, if or how assessment might differ by gender. And then as we interviewed residents um, with this sort of background question, we found that a lot of sort of sentiments bubbled to the surface that really reflected how residents' perception of how they were being assessed was vastly different between um, men and women trainees in internal medicine. And that sort of regardless necessarily of what the numbers showed, that their experiences were very different. And so we, in seeing that, we started to delve a bit further and look at some of the literature surrounding um, experiences, as well as sort of Uh, different people's perceptions and assessments. So it sort of shifted gears a little bit throughout our process, um, looking at sort of more rote numbers or distinct feedback to more so people's perceptions and experiences.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. When I read the paper, I thought, wow, this is my story and training, basically. Every single thing that people have commented on, I've gone through. And it was really interesting to see the men's side of the story, which, uh, you know, When women are going through training, we think, um, and especially when you get feedback, you're not really sharing that, it's kind of isolating, um, and you don't know what the other side is really going through. So it was really interesting and eye-opening. And some of the themes that you guys discussed were things like women constantly being observed by other healthcare staff, for example, clerks and patients, very differently than the male colleagues. Um, which leads to a lot of self-questioning and self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Totally. You know, it's interesting that you say that you saw yourself in it because while doing the interviews, I really had to restrain myself from being like, yes, I felt this also. And, you know... I didn't really have to because that was the nice part of doing focus groups was really people's experiences, particularly the women's experiences, were reflected off of each other's experiences. And someone would mention, oh, hey, this happened to me. I was you know, mistaken for the nurse or the patient asked to see the doctor, despite the fact that I had gone to see them three times already that day. Um, and other residents sort of ping ponged uh, back and forth similar feelings or sentiments and um, it seemed almost cathartic to the groups uh, of women who were speaking to that, um, mostly because they hadn't, especially those earlier in training hadn't had the opportunity to um, discuss that before. I think the experience of the men involved in this um, study was interesting as well. You know, I I do think that there was probably, particularly for the male residents, um, a degree of selection bias, right? Like people who might be interested in sort of, uh, gender studies or the more social side of medicine may have selected themselves to be part of this. But I did also sort of, um, we reached out to everybody and watching how they sort of navigated some of the spaces of their wanting to be supportive of their women colleagues, but not really knowing how um, was quite interesting to me and really showed a bit of a gap in terms of Like, I I don't know what the right answer is. How do we support our men colleagues to be advocates for women without necessarily taking up more space? Um, And I think a lot of times it's sort of clearing the pedestal and then stepping aside for other people to speak.
2: And I was just going to add that I think it was actually a a neat uh, design feature that you built in, Maxime, is that we didn't want to just interview women because some critiques of previous studies are like well don't all interns get asked to fax things or you know change the way they present themselves because it is part of a professional identity formation for all young physicians to go through some form of transformation but we used the exact same interview guide and we had our colleague James Rassos who was also a resident at that time conduct the male focus groups the men's focus groups in that way we really were able to see um, what was kind of the junior resident experience versus a gendered experience?
0: Yeah, definitely. I can't tell you how many times my patients have said, you know, I, I haven't seen a doctor all day. And they're like, well, I saw you three times already. And so it was really, as I said, your entire paper resonates with every single experience I've had. And um, it's, it's interesting to note that your male colleagues also notice that there is a difference in how you're treated. Um, Sometimes we tend to think it's in our head and, you know, brush it off and keep going through your day as if that didn't happen. But I think deep down, it really does over time build up and um, contributes to the self-doubt that we all tend to carry. Um, And it was interesting that you also mentioned that it doesn't really change once you're in attending, that it kind of seems to continue And Dr. Ginsberg, if you had any experiences and, you know, as an attending and a senior scientist, do you think these experiences change over time or do they continue?
2: I mean, I'm sure they do. The older, I wouldn't say the older I get, but the older I look, I think makes a difference because I uh, was, um, you know, I have one of those, uh, maybe I'm lucky, a young looking face until I was much, much, much older um, I think that was a hindrance as well is just, you know, not looking your age is that no, and I'm short. So I kind of was often uh, overlooked. And if there was a male medical student who was taller than me, as they all are like people, like patients would just like look over my head at the student. So that, that was just kind of like, you just shrug it off after a while. I found what was really interesting was during um, the COVID pandemic when we all started wearing scrubs rather than our regular street clothes. And so here I am like just a shorter woman wearing scrubs, like every other health professional, I was mistaken for anything, but a doctor, Um, ward clerk, nurse, physiotherapist, pharmacist. Um, so I think that maybe I had gotten used to how I dressed being, I, I didn't realize how much it was actually helping me, until that was gone and sort of equalized. And then I was, you know, just another woman on the team. I must be not the doctor. Um, and that was not just by patients by any means. It was by colleagues, people who didn't know me yet. So yeah, it's it's definitely still an issue.
0: Definitely. I'm still waiting for the day I get mistaken for a doctor. It's interesting you mentioned the dress code. So that was another theme that um, you guys had your study that at the PGY-1 level, um, the women were wearing more fun clothing and dressing up and feeling confident. And then over time, they were criticized for wearing those clothing and they kind of had to tone down to be taken seriously. What was your experience with the residents?
1: Shifra and I have spoken about this extensively because I think that we I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I saw myself in that. I love expressing myself through clothes. And I'm one of those people who probably has continued to wear a certain degree of like loud and fun clothing (laughs) throughout my residency. And I found it so heartbreaking that people would have to sort of rein themselves in or feel as though they had to change um, their, uh, the way they presented themselves to the world to such a degree. You know, now, if you were to tell me that it's because pants have more pockets than most skirts do, that's one thing. (laughs) Um, And we can go on another tangent about, you know, women's professional clothing. But it sounded like a lot of it really was for the purposes of um, being being taken seriously or being taken um, appreciated by their colleagues or seen by their colleagues in the way that they wanted to be seen. And I do think that that sort of rings true and continues throughout residency. I remember being a PGY1 or a first- year resident and sort of looking to the senior residents, the PGY2s and threes who would, you know wear their white coats around the wards and how that really was a symbol of being the boss or being in control. Um, and those PGY ones who I interviewed for this uh, uh, for this study had also mentioned that white coats were really a, a big symbol of um, authority. Which I thought was really interesting. Also, donning a stethoscope and sort of once you know what stethoscope is usually associated with a physician and which ones are associated with a nurse or a respiratory therapist um, is also something interesting and something that came up, uh, I think, in one of the quotations in my paper, in our paper. um, But also, someone mentioned that they would never go anywhere without their stethoscope. Like, you better bet that things around my neck as this very outward and visual marker that I am a physician. I think some of those still hold true despite the COVID pandemic, even when we're all wearing scrubs. And, you know, I just came off of a three-week stint of junior attending and I probably could have worn, you know, a sweatshirt over my scrubs, but I always wore my white coat, probably for a similar reason. You know, it's some of these symbols that are hard to let go because they connote um, such a strong message to those around us.
0: Definitely the public perception, the healthcare staff perception we can't really change that. And I think we do have a long way to go. I remember starting as a PGY-1 and wearing my bold, fun clothing. Um, and even though I've worn a white coat on top, it um, uh, one of the very first patient encounters was where they said, you know, you don't look like a doctor. Um, and then it becomes right. a question of what does a doctor look like? And then what should I do to look more like a doctor? And then now I'm spending time on looking the part
1: than learning medicine. So right. it's um, it can be quite stressful. I have this, I just, I wanna throw this in cause I think that it sort of speaks to what people wear. I have this one pair of pants that are like black and white kind of, they look almost like paint marks and they're a little bit wild and crazy but they're also sort of professional, they're tailored, they have pockets. And every time I wear them, I you know I've had them probably for the last five or six years. Every time I wear them I always get comments because I feel like they're the funkiest things that anybody's ever seen in a hospital patients comment on them other doctors comment on them nurses comment on them and it's almost like there's a bit of a a hunger for this self-expression or for this um uh, someone maybe to break that mold a little bit but you know they do still fall within the realm of uh, professional wear
0: definitely I think we need a new definition of what is professional, and then what's professional in the healthcare setting, and then a separate category of what does a doctor look like. And in uh, and, and COVID times with, you know, scrubs everywhere, I think the lines are blurred even more. And uh, the next theme that you guys discuss that's also very close to my heart is assertiveness and limits on what is the perfect behavior for a woman who's in medicine, in training, um, why we're judged so harshly and why we have this constant need to be perfect, where if you're too passive and submissive, that's not okay. You need to work on your confidence. And if you're too aggressive and too confident, then now you need to tone down again. Um, Whereas our male colleagues, it was interesting, don't really experience that. And they're told, you're confident. Good job. Keep going. And very often, I mean, I've personally experienced the same sort of feedback, and you're left bewildered as to how do I behave? And uh, am I being inappropriate? Am I showing the appropriate level of assertiveness? And especially that comes out in Code Blues, as you mentioned in your study, where I kind of have to speak very loudly. And then you come across as that annoying code leader. Whereas if your male colleague does the same thing, you know it's a totally different experience. So, um, tell us about that, um, assertiveness thing.
1: Yeah. Um, it was one that I didn't, I don't think I realized how much I had experienced it in t- until I went over, uh, the transcripts of these interviews, um, and realized how much, uh, my colleagues' experiences really resonated with my own. I mean, I think you, pre- outlined quite clearly sort of the conundrum that most uh, women residents and probably women staff as well find themselves in right this sort of caught between a rock and a hard place like how loud or boisterous do you be um how quiet is too quiet and also this idea you know that that didn't come up as much in the paper but that I'm thinking about now which is that like no matter what someone is going to comment on what you're going to do right you're Their supervisors or their colleagues always felt a need to sort of comment or shape the person that they were going to become. Whereas it doesn't necessarily sound like their uh, uh, men counterparts had the same commentary necessarily, or it didn't affect them in the same way. Um, I think one of the things that sort of came up most and really resonated with me was this idea of of not being assertive enough versus being too assertive, and the conflict that comes into play. The um, sort of role incongruity. So, um, you know, you are the code leader. You're taking on these stereotypically sort of masculine traits as a woman, and then for that, you are then punished because you're sort of stepping outside of these roles or stepping outside of the boundaries that have been defined as being w- a woman. And that's sort of where this idea of the physician as being male um, is a little bit complicated because then how do you or how do I as a woman physician start to sort of embody that space or that role um, without sort of overstepping the boundaries that have been set by society? Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: I, I think that is exactly it. It's, you can't like, there's, there's the one side of it where uh, women, some women at least feel that they have to act more masculine in order to get that same, um, Um, sense of authority and respect from other people. But on the other hand, if you just start doing that, you can be penalized because that's not how people expect women to behave. So there's that side of it. And then also there was this, I think my favorite theme in the paper was the pushback to that saying, why are we making masculine male behavior the norm? Like, why should we suppress that more feminine side and way of communicating? And there was a great paper out recently, and I cannot remember the the name of it, but it had to do with women in medicine, um, kind of flattening hierarchies with other health professions. And, uh, you know, all these studies that, you know, whatever flaws they might have that That patients, uh, let's say in hospital medicine, uh, do better with women uh, attendings. And there are more relatable ways of being with your patients sometimes. And so all of those things that, wait a minute, we have to stop doing that and act more like men. Why shouldn't men just learn to act more like women? Because maybe we're doing it better in some ways. So I thought that was a really neat set of themes that came up in the paper.
1: And truthfully, you know, we could complicate it and say that why are these attributes male or female at all, right? Why are they not just different skill sets that are valued for their own benefit and a thing, the, the, the benefits or drawbacks that they can bring to a given situation? But somehow, again, sort of as a society or as a profession, we have labeled certain skill sets as masculine, feminine, agentic, or more sort of um, you know, touchy feely.
2: Yeah. And people on the podcasts can't see our generous use of air quotes when
1: we're using
2: <laughs> Right. Definitely.
0: Right. Lots of air quotes. Um, no, I mean, it's really difficult. And I think, you know, to be the perfect Goldilocks as, as a woman, that's what you have to be. And you're judged differently. Whereas, um, there's just less resistance on the other side. Um, and uh, it, it all has to do with society and how society perceives gender. And you're always going to be seen as a woman first and a doctor later. So, uh, you know, that's how we're just perceived and judged beyond our CV and beyond our competence, unfortunately. Um, and that brings me to my next question of how that influences your career trajectory. Does that hold you back? Um, and what factors push you forward? <clears throat>
2: Uh, with, with more career behind me than ahead of me at this point. (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, like I'm, I, I can think of so many times where I feel like, like being a woman in a fairly male dominated field definitely affected me. And I, I pursued respirology and critical care training Uh, you know, quite a long time ago. And that was, there were hardly any women in critical care. I mean, there were, but not nearly as many as men. And that is one of those areas where, you know, strong voice, big person leadership skills saunter into a room and have everyone just know you're the leader. That was definitely something I had to work on. And I didn't always get it right. And and like we've been talking about maybe being judged uh, on those things rather than just on my did I have the right diagnosis and management plan? I kind of felt like some of it was this performance that I had to keep honing and trying to get right. That's a lot of work to have to do in addition to learning how to resuscitate patients and all of these other things. So I kind of feel like it was, it was always this extra burden. And same as when I started my career and I had some early leadership positions in medical education, and it was that same thing as like, how to, how to run a meeting, how to delegate tasks versus, oh, I asked that person to do it once. I don't want to be a pest. I'll just do it myself was kind of like my default. And I was like, I was constantly kind of trying to navigate those roles between what is expected. And maybe also because education was also fairly dominated by women, there were certain ways of being, maybe that's true for men too. Maybe that's part of academic medicine, professional identity formation, but i i did feel it as a woman and and probably less now because we have so many phenomenal women leaders. Um, but yeah and and i and i don't think it's much different from how people are going through it now.
1: yeah. i mean just to speak sort of you know earlier in my career and being in a role this year that really straddles sort of residents and staff and Is maybe one of the first sort of true leadership positions apart from, you know, an extracurricular leadership position that I've had in the past. Um, It's interesting to see, even in the past nine or 10 months, sort of how I've found my footing or how I've gotten into the rhythm of things, similar to Schiffer. Like, how many times do you ask or pester or, you know, again, air quotes, or bug someone before you just do the thing yourself? Um, What does it mean to, you know, be a little bit wield the slightly more forceful hand at times and sort of put your foot down. Whereas at other times sort of rely on um, maybe more my, more of my sort of emotive or sensitive um, uh, qualities or skills. And that's something that I still sort of waffle between. And in some ways it's nice to have the ability to go between both, right. To go between sort of firm decision-making versus like more <laughs> emotional discussions. And I think that that brings a lot to various situations that I'm faced with. Um, but it
2: it can be challenging, yeah. like I you just reminded me of, like when I was first starting out, like I used to go to so many committees, whether they were in medical education or just other kinds of junior leadership things. And you'd walk into a room and around the table would be like a bunch of older white men in suits and ties. and And I just remember immediately feeling like, well, I can't speak up here, or I felt like I should have worn a suit, or like there were all these other things going through my mind. Maybe that's just me and my own personal insecurities. But now when you walk into a room, it's, you know, often at least half women, women leaders, um, maybe less formal style of dressing overall, it just feels like a more comfortable space for me. Um, So I have seen that change.
0: Definitely. As I said, all your experiences is exactly what I feel like, you know, I've been going through, and it's a tough terrain to navigate, um, and maybe something that we're just going to be discovering as we go. And I think the more we talk about it, the more people will come forward, and the more there'll be opportunity for change. I'll let our audience know to please read this incredible paper, Dressing the Part. Gender difference in residents experience of feedback in internal medicine. And if you have any comments or suggestions or concerns and want to be on the podcast, don't forget to email us at wink at women in Thank you, Maxime and Schiffer again for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you guys and My pleasure. I look forward to more discussions.
1: Thanks so much for having us.